Welcome to the Imagine Place podcast. I'm your host, Doug Shapiro, and I'm searching for voices that can help inspire a more creative and courageous you. I met Roy Abernathy nearly a decade ago. He was brilliant, still is. I had always admired his big picture mindset and creative thinking. Today we do some dreaming out loud and explore some far-fetched, or maybe not so far-fetched, concepts for the future of business and real estate. The topic that we hit pretty heavy, the four-day work week. And after all that, there's still more to Roy than what you think. You'll be surprised when Roy shares with us exactly what a veterinarian can teach a designer. It's an awesome conversation. Here we go. I used to joke when I, I went from the last firm, I, I worked for to Newmark, um, 17 coming into 18. And one of the things I'd done is really looked at kind of a labor analysis long term of kind of shifts in the workforce and shifts in employment and need. And I started predicting that if you didn't have the workforce you wanted by 2023, you weren't going to be able to find them. And you're going to have to look at like other alternative ways to get work done. And I, I kind of feel like nobody believed me. I mean, it was it was a long time ago, <laughs> realistically. And, you know, people people were not as worried at that point in time. You know, if I if I kind of turn the clock back now, no one would no one would have debated um, that if they if they knew what was coming today. I've heard I've heard something around access versus ownership. Yep. And I know that's been a big trend. I wonder if that's where these firms are going to have to go to find talent. It's going to be an access versus ownership perspective on talent. And they may have to think, okay, well, you know, we, we cannot get these people, but we need to find access. Well, and I think, you know, it, it, it's so funny. We, we've talked about this in the design and uh, the furniture technology industry for years that, you know, going to a um, more of an outsourced, I'm buying this outcome versus I'm hiring the staff to do something model um, isn't, isn't going to be a, a big part of what we do going forward. And so when you think of kind of the, these migrant herds of people that, that need a place to do a task and they're only there to do that task. And once the task is done, they may no longer need the space. They may no longer have the network of people. It's, it's amazing to think of the implications relative to real estate and all the other aspects of, of what we do or what used to drive what we do. And pre-COVID, you know, a lot of big institutions, you know, it started in IT, but then shifted into other business operation areas. You know, 20% of the workforce was contract. And a lot of the organizations, I worked with one that they said, oh, yeah, we have 6,000 people on campus. We literally did a count and found 10,000. <laughs> and and they were contractors. Wow. And they were housing the contractors like they were employees. That's wild. But, I mean, if that only takes a, a 10 or 15% shift, you're at a point where 50% of the workforce for big organizations, you know, might you, you might not own them you, you have to decide like what the model is what your control factors are what you provide what you don't provide and you know what what the policy and and kind of hr landscape looks like 
And when you get to a tipping point where 50% is non-employee and 50% is employee, when do you get to a point that you're an outsourcing company and not a, an organization with a, a big bank of employees? Yeah, that that is, it's a hard, hard thing to imagine because I always felt like culture is such a key component to a business is, is people can share a certain way of doing business that creates a culture that then the clients that interact with that company feel in some way or another through the design, through the experience, through the service, whatever it might be. And so it's hard. And even down to the, to the help desk, you know, it's like if, if you can create a culture, there's so much power in that. And so it's hard to imagine how you do that when, when you've outsourced maybe half of your talent. Yeah. But in think about kind of the way, you know, we've approached things. I mean, we, in a lot of cases, we have relationships that are recurring relationships, but, you know, we go from project to project to project and, and we get to sample all those cultures um, as we kind of mm. go through that process. And in a lot of cases, because we're, my approach has always been, you know, what, how I learned to consult, which is you go embed yourself with the, the client for some period of time to truly understand them and provide the most value. You know, will, will the future be a, a combination of cultures or will mm. culture now be diverse and be geographic and the teams you work on and, we we talk about you know we don't work for companies for a long period of time you know will will our will our cultural barometer now be more diverse yeah i mean will culture be more based on culture as we knew it back i don't know in social studies class it's not a business thing it's a human thing yeah. and maybe maybe that's the role of culture in the future and it's the way you're describing it it's almost like well maybe it doesn't you know maybe it, doesn't have as much of a place in the business world as it used to. Hmm. Well, I mean, you, you can totally geek out and say, you know, businesses will become about ideas and you'll, you'll have an idea. You'll bring a group of people together to develop it. You'll productize it. Um, and then you'll, once it's stabilized, the, the people who tended to like create it would move on to something else. Um, you know, do you, is the definition of a business change and are there creators, are there people who kind of manage and nurture and are there people who clean up, um, you know, and, and does the, we, maybe we don't end up with companies that are, that are more than, you know, 10 years old and product taste, productization wow. happens faster, but to, that's, that's like, that's totally the like Orwell um, yeah. on it, but we've been shaken so much that some of those things are not unthinkable anymore. I, I agree. I think, and we all need to be in that spirit of like, why not? Or not even why not, but why? Like, why is it this way? Why? You yeah. Know? Um, how about the work week? I mean, there's a big why question. <laughs> I, I had a. Uh, I am afraid to answer this question, and then I will get fired. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know it. But like, there, there was a, there was a gentleman. Uh, on a uh, on an interview, I think it was the Daily Show, and he said, "Like, well, you know, you know why you work five days a week because uh, there's only two days in a weekend. But who made that rule? Like, why does a weekend <laughs> only two days? Why isn't it four days? You know, like who cares? Uh, and, and that's the big question. Is like, well, why? You know, uh, what about the work week? Are, are are people asking you about that? 
Um, they are including our leadership. Um, I, I think if you, if you go back and do the history on, on what created a work week, um, a lot of it got down to the, the 40 hour work week is an industrial paradigm driven by shifts, driven by the amount of like physical and mental labor that it was perceived an employee could actually perform. And so I'll give you a great example. I mean, I came from the more the medical industry. They don't operate in typical work weeks. And so doctor and nurse shifts are, are not eight hours long in a lot of cases. And when you think of some of the most critical, most, most cognitive, um, and, and to some extent, truly life saving or, or life, life risk decisions that get made in what we do as humans, the work week is not our normal model. And, mm. you know, you, you also think of like airline pilots. And, and so if you take away the constraint of the Monday to Friday and Saturday, Sunday cycle, and really looked at ebbs and flows of work and when things need to happen and when people are most productive. I think that's where we'll get to, but, but I think we, we've got four generations in the workforce that, that are used to a five and two. Um, so that's, that's my long-term probably well after I'm, I'm dead, um, prediction. The, the <laughs> short term, the short term is a, a four day work week that is longer days, which we've all gotten used to seems to be where it will level out. But I think that will take a lot of change in expectation and a lot of change in just people who are used to working five days and taking two off. I mean, I, I've got leaders who are like, Roy, if I have a three day weekend, I don't know what I would do with the extra day. <laughs> That's kind of funny. And so it's, it's, you know, the, the uh, sale of the sale of, of puzzles will go up dramatically. Right. And, and, and I'm like, you know, when, when I, when I think about it, um, you know, even, even organizations that shifted to more of a hybrid model and you've seen a lot of it in the press too, you know, like no meeting Fridays. Um, yep. You know, when, when we have summer schedule where, you know, the office closes at lunchtime on Friday, um, Friday mornings, like the least occupied of the week, certainly, but, you know, Friday afternoons tended to be catch up time for people, um, who yeah. weren't every, able to get everything done during the, the work week. Um, I, I think, you know, if we come out of this and kind of level set as a four and three, which is a little more like some of the, the more international models. Um, I think we'll we'll get used to that, and I think our work life plan balance will be better, and we'll be more productive. Uh, the companies that offer things like that will be preferred in the beginning, and kind of force the people who don't want to change as much. But um, yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's almost like the need for talent might be the thing that actually sparks this more than anything. Well, and, and I think you have to look at it from a, you know an office perspective versus an industrial perspective. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, things around like equipment shifts and, you know, even kind of wear and tear in space and how mechanical systems run and how buildings are set up to operate is on that five and two model. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there'll be legacy things that make it more difficult, but uh, the innovators will be the ones who, who kind of win the talent war in that and the ones who don't let history kind of predetermine the outcome. I mean, could, could you imagine a almost a shared 
model. Except now I'm thinking, oh, wow, now space gets utilized even less, right? If we go four and three versus five and two. So, so, but, but if you, if you went three, you know, could you, could you share a building with a, with another firm or share a space with another firm and just kind of say, Hey, we're going to be Monday through Wednesday and you're going to be Thursday through Friday, you know, and I, I don't know, just thinking out loud. Well, I, one of the, one of the interesting things we found, and, and this is, you know, I'll layer this with like, you know, R and D, um, because R and D, the constraint is the space, the equipment and the process time. And so if you do four longer days, followed by three days off, um, or even look at rotating that. So kind of take the medical model and apply it to a, a laboratory or an R and D cycle. Imagine if you could run two shifts and, and have people either do handoffs or two separate initiatives associated with those. Um, could you accelerate innovation? Could you accelerate the research cycles? Wow. And yeah. a lot of companies on the R&D side have found that this has occurred during COVID because people do work less longer days. Or sorry, they work less days, but longer days. And, and we actually, we, we had an organization in Canada that did this within the Canadian government's infrastructure. And, and they found by making that shift, and if they do three and a half and three and a half, they could actually do handoffs. So like the first group hands off a half day overlap to the second group. Yep. That they could basically run R and D almost 24 seven. That makes sense. Especially that half day handoff where it's kind of understood that overlap is going to be all about, you know, bringing up to speed briefing, whatever that might be. Interesting. Well, and then one, one last thing to that, you know, the, if we go to a four and three model, so this was my challenge for the, the leader that said, I don't know what I'll do with the extra day. If we go to four and three, will we be different consumers? Mm. Oh, wow. And oh, yeah. So, That'll change behavior. So now will we, will we consume more downtime? Will we consume more products associated with downtime? Will we spend time doing the things that, that, you know, and, and I make generalizations that we all say we want to do more time with family and friends, more time with ourselves, more, more time with, with, you know, things related to health and wellness. Um, will, will we choose to do that? Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I can only imagine that there will be changes. Yeah. You would think that would be a dramatic change in consumer behavior and, and even education. You wonder if education will follow. Yep. But, and I think uh, we've already seen a longer school day. Um, yeah. And so, you know, imagine, well, but I mean, yeah, it, you just get into all these conflicts. So if your kids go to school four days a week, but you work five days a week, there's, there's all these kind of cultural norms that have driven everything that would make it hard to, to make a transition. Yeah, it, you're right. It would have to be in chorus, uh, and the reality is that's it's probably going to be a cobbled mess for for this for the time <laughs> being until it settles down. Well, I mean, we have some we have some clients that are basically creating campuses or almost cities where everything will run on these new schedules. Yeah, it's almost like you know I'm in the Midwest, right? And in the summer. And it happens at the same time the cicadas 
you know, just when it comes to this roar and it's like, they're never just kind of individually do it. It's like, we're going to have to be like those cicadas. Like we're going to have to get in chorus and all kind of get on board at the same time. The, uh, I want to ask about change like at a personal level. I just want to get into you a little bit more. Do you like change? Um, what do you think the answer to that question is going to be? I think the answer is going to be yes, but then it's going to lead me to another. But I want you to answer it. Yes, yes, I, I, um, I, I thrive on change. So I think about all the wonderful projects you've been on and the travel across the world and the people you've met. Is there anything you're nostalgic for? Um connecting with people face to face in those places around the world and hearing the why the why they're with an organization the why they live where they live the the why they've made the choices that they've made and you know if anything i'm i'm probably a yeah, you know, i would like to say i'm a, i'm a little bit of a historian in in looking at pattern behavior hmm. And like, you know, why people have decided to do what they've decided to do when given free choice. Um, so I, I miss those conversations um, and, and just being engaged at that level because we we haven't been and nobody's had a choice and everybody's had to, to kind of be in this isolation. So if there's anything I'm nostalgic for and, and super eager to get back to is is being able to ask why. Hmm. Is there, is there like a moment that kind of like epitomizes that feeling? Like, do you have like a special interaction or project that you hold on to? And it's like that, I wish they were all like this. Um, usually it's that first aha moment and it's, it's working with the, the person or the group of people that we interact with the most on that project and, and seeing them get to a point where, they they realize or they understand or they they all of a sudden like see the amplified value of the process that we're going through mm. and and you know after that they tend to become an, an evangelist for whatever the change is and, and so i'll give you an example and so so there's so many people doug that i just haven't met face to face there is this amazing ceo that we work with who sits on the west coast and we we have a new tool that we use that we call human advantage that looks at all the people parameters of, of where you want to go and why you make decisions. We took him through the process or took his workforce through the process. We took him through it as well. We, we got to a point where he, he sat in with us now as we've done um, like, you know, the people manager team reviews around the world with his organization. And, and by the fifth meeting that we had, and I think it was either Taiwan or, or one of his offices in Asia, he actually took over, did the presentation, um, and sold it to his team in that office. And wow. you know, that's that that is probably the piece that um I've I've gotten more emotional about looking for. Um and, and we've always looked for like buy-in and where you get consensus and things like that. But yeah, when you have somebody who is that passionate about the growth of his organization. Who, mm. who becomes an evangelist for the change that, you know, he wants to see and that he knows they can now do. Um, that's, that's that point for me. That's a huge feeling. Yeah. I, and I, I feel like sometimes, you know, design, uh, 
is missing that sometimes, you know, that tangible feeling of value. We all strive to kind of get to that place of understanding. Uh, and some of it is honestly just, Roy, you're such a great communicator of ideas that you're able to get people to that place easier. I mean, how, like, where's, your, what's your tip on that? Like, do you have a tip on communicating <laughs> the value of things you can't see? Is there something that you do that's formulaic that we can learn from? Um, I, I wish I knew exactly. The thing that I take away from most when I'm in conversations with people is, is I was trained to, to observe probably more than listen. And that gets me in trouble sometimes, but, but I started off on the, the animal health side of things. And so, you know, you can't ask an animal what is wrong. And, and you can hold look on, Roy. Medical. You got you got to stop there, Roy. I I know this about you, but I don't think others do. You're a veteran. You were a veterinarian. No, I, well, I started I started down that path. I, I never actually practiced or anything, but um, you know, I, I did all the research side, and yeah, I even have a, a cattle farm today, about 50 miles north of Atlanta. But the and I did all that before I went to, to design school or before I went through chemistry or other parts of my education. And so um, that, that was my foundation. And, and it's a hard thing to, to plan. I can't imagine a designer would go do that before they went to, um, before they went to design school. But I wonder if it shouldn't be a part of a, of a curriculum where, you know, you have to solve a problem without using the, the, without, without being able to ask why. I mean, so you have to look for all the other reasons why. And, um, I, I did some work with, with some of the leaders in kind of animal behavior and what, um, what shapes emotion in animals. If you believe that animals have emotion, which I do, but, I do. um, you know, it's, that is probably the thing that that has served me best my my entire career is you know and, and it's so funny so when you think about the more sarcastic things that that might cause you to um to like not believe people and what they say um mm. there there are things that people believe and then there are things that they do there are things that there are behaviors that you know they mimic and then behaviors that they they do without thinking and the behaviors without thinking tend to be the behaviors that that really drive um, even culture. And mm -hmm. I would say that's that's probably the the thing that has served me best. Um, I don't know how to tell anybody how to emulate that because it wasn't a plan; it was something that just happened. But I think it's um, that that's probably been the most valuable aspect of you know how I've experienced working with people, working with animals, working with environments. I think that is an amazing lesson to take away. I mean, th this idea that you're you're in a situation where you cannot ask, and so you have to do your research and observation. I'm just fascinated by by that takeaway and how you've been able to carry that forward. Something I've never thought of uh, when I when you think of what you can learn through really interacting and understanding animals fascinating when i have some really funny stories the the funniest one is the um the oldest veterinary school in north america is actually just outside of toronto canada and i, I worked for almost 12 years with uh, 
the the whole team that that kind of drives facilities and animal behavior at that facility. They called me because we were doing a renovation to a big part of an old dairy that they have there. That's a big exhibition space. And they that's still where they let people engage with the animals. Um, they called me and said, Roy, we have somebody here from the animal behavior group that wants to widen the chute that the cows go down between the different parts of the barn because they think that it would be more more humane. I caution them that there's a two inch tolerance to the width of those chutes relative to the animals and that it might be more humane. But if they increase it by those two inches, the animal will turn around and come backwards in the chute. Um, this was before FaceTime. So they have me on the phone and they mock it up, widen it, and put the cows in the chute. The cow turns around and chases them out of the chute. Huh. Um, so they're, they're inherent like mechanical things about behavior. And then there are emotional and, and, you know, um, you know, kind of more, more choice best things about behavior. Um, and, and so I, I don't, I don't have a good connotation for humans in an animal shoot, but there are things <laughs> relative, but I mean, think about it from a quarter with perspective from like an entry door things, you know, things that, that have driven, been driven by codes for evacuation and codes for people safely navigating through a building. But I mean, we design a lot of aspects of a building today to drive, uh, get you safely out of the building during an emergency behavior. Right. Not to drive interaction behavior. And yeah, I mean, if we wanted to start creating a list of things that don't make sense, I think we'd have to start a new podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lots of diagrams too. Uh, well, I really enjoyed your perspectives. Uh, I think just this last little nugget here, your history and how that's informed the way you think and observe today was just absolutely fascinating. Is there another piece of advice that you love to give or that you've received? Um, you know, probably something related to preconceived notions and the fact that every client, every engagement, every problem, every solution is somewhat different. And, and, you know, the certainly not taking a check the box behavior, but in what we do today, you know, I think if, if we looked at you know, designed from a hundred years ago, um, where like Franklin Wright may have been able to shape element, every element that went into a residence or into a building. There's so much more today around making choices that drive behavior. Um, so, you know, understanding and, and, you know, really being cognizant of what the key elements are that drive the behavior versus maybe what the secondary or tertiary elements are. Putting a, a great fabric or finish on a surface may look amazing, uh, but it may drive a, a behavior that's contrary to what you're trying to accomplish. And so taking that holistic view and stepping back. And But one thing that I, I love and hate to do, um, I love to go back into buildings or spaces that I had some influence on the, the design for and just sit and watch. And the thing that probably broke my heart first in the profession is the first space that I created that got demolished or renovated. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of the most exciting things in my career have been to go back and see how users have tweaked or changed something to make it better. So it's almost like the less perfect and correct something is, the more adaptable 
it becomes. It's yeah. like how, how do we how do we get out of that mindset of trying to get it just right and instead create something that is, you know, I don't want to say infinitely capable, but there's a there's a word there. There's a word there that's missing. I think from our from our workplace dialogue, and I don't want to say hackable or modular, but empowering maybe. Well, and maybe maybe a theory that nothing is ever truly finished. Yes. And maybe finished is the wrong word, but maybe nothing's ever truly complete until it's yes. in use. Yeah, that's it. Okay. I think we got somewhere today. No, it, it was fun. It, it's so great talking to you. I mean, I miss, you know, even the interactions that we've had throughout our careers and, you know, the opportunities we've had to run into each other. You know, we, we, we need to find ways to do more of this. We, we absolutely do. For more design stories, visit us at OFS.com slash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. Thanks for listening.